0: Well, that's the um, third time I've heard that song this morning, and I only cried all three times. It's, you know, that song, as Kimmy knows, always turns me into a puddle, and um, there's just something about the simple lyrics and the beauty of A Wonderful and Merciful Savior, um, which really fits into what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to continue this series um, of questions that not only um, non-Christians have but, but even those of us who have been believers for a long time, we wrestle with many of these things and we ought to be able to wrestle with them openly and honestly as Colin prayed about this morning and this is a great place to do it. Um, we started with the question of what is God like? Good question, powerful question, difficult question, hard question Last week Greg um, outlined for us uh, the answer to the question, does God care about us? And the scriptures are filled um, with um, teaching about how God really does care for us, and today we're going to wrestle with this question: Do don't all paths lead to God? Which I call the Alice in Wonderland question, one of my um, great theological tomes I have on my shelves in my office, Alice in Wonderland. But there's this great conversation in the Alice in Wonderland story between Alice and the Cheshire cat. She's looking for her destination. And the conversation goes like this. Alice says, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the Cheshire cat answers by saying, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. And Alice says, well, I don't much care where. And the Cheshire cat says, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And Alice says, well, so long as I get somewhere. And the Cheshire cat says, well, oh, you're sure to do that if only you walk long enough. If you walk long enough not knowing where you're going, you'll eventually end up somewhere. It just may not be where you want to go because you really don't know where that even is. The somewhere that we are headed for many people around the world is some kind of connection with an ultimate being um, and people call him a lot of different things. Some people call him God. Some people call him a a higher plane of enlightenment. Whatever the case might be, we're we're trying to get there. That's the somewhere where we're headed. And there's lots of different ways many people believe as a way to get there. And this is not a new question, how do we get there? Jesus um, The last night he was with his disciples um, was celebrating the Passover meal. And he had the disciples there together and they went through the whole ritual of the Passover meal and they engaged in conversations. And Jesus wanted to communicate with them what was next in his life, what was next. And next in his life was death. And so this was um, the the dialogue that, that took place between the two of them. And I'm going to read the first part of it and ask you to read the second part. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? He's going to the father and he's going to prepare a place for them. But he's going somewhere. He's he's not going to be with them any longer. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know The way to the place where I am going. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which is an answer that many of us as believers like. It's very comforting. But for a lot of people, that answer is troubling. They don't like that answer. The troubling part about them for that answer is that it seems way too exclusive I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's the only possible way. And for many, that's just way too exclusive. One young adult who was interviewed about this question of don't all paths lead to God represents a mentality that exists in the world out there today. It's something that we have to know about and accept. She's a college trained, high professional, very smart woman. She said, how could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and to try to convert everybody else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. Now I think if we're going to be honest, and we are in church, so we probably ought to be, Jesus' statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, is exclusive. It's very exclusive. How can you say it's not exclusive? I'm the only way, and no one can get there except through me. It's very exclusive. But our concern about exclusivity is kind of an American cultural problem. I mean, this idea about exclusivity doesn't exist in the rest of the world. There are nations that, uh, where Islam is the predominant religion. It's the national religion, and no other religion discussion... Or idea is acceptable or allowed. Or sometimes you're even punished by death. That's exclusivity. There are other ideas. Every religion on the face of the earth is exclusive. I mean, think about it a second, right? I mean, if you believe in your faith system, whatever it might be, that's exclusive to you, and you think you have the right answer. Everybody else has the wrong answer. And so that's an exclusive way of looking at things as well. Every religious system is exclusive. We don't have a corner on the market of that as Christians. The question is, the que- this question that we're dealing with today, don't all pass leave to God, is part of what I think is, is unique to America and is only growing. It's this cultural value that we have in the, in the nation where we live that is probably the primary cultural value, value currently, and that is the value of tolerance. In our culture today, anything that hints at being intolerant or non-exclusive is unacceptable. I mean, you can compromise your values if you want. You can alter your character in any way, shape, or form. You can fudge on your ethics. You can cheat on your principles. But by all means, don't give anybody the idea that you are intolerant. Because that's just not tolerable. Now, I value tolerance. I think as Christians, we're called to be tolerant. Jesus was very accepting. Tolerance is a good thing. But I think in our culture we have a misunderstanding about intolerance. I mean, I might have a strong opinion about something. I might take a particular stand on something. But that doesn't automatically make me intolerant of other positions or other ideas. It only means that here's mine, and you can have yours, and that's great, and I will respect that. That's tolerance. I'm only intolerant if I don't let you do the same thing or if I dismiss your point of view, or your stand. So let's take something that's uh, deep at the core and the heart of many people in Chicagoland right now. That is the Chicago Cubs. I mean, if you're a Cubs fan, if I was a Cubs fan, I would allow you to be a White Sox fan. You can go ahead and be a White I would tolerate that on your part. For the next three or four games that they have to play in their season, that's fine. We'll continue as Cubs fan to continue to cheer our team on to the World Series. I'm not a prophet, but it's an idea I have, okay? So I can be a Cubs fan. You can be a White Sox fan. That's okay. I can tolerate you if you will just tolerate me. I mean, I did grow up in a state where people couldn't tolerate one another. I mean, there is no tolerance between Michigan and Michigan State fans. I mean, it's pure hatred, and we even have this in our family. I mean, I grew up on University of Michigan football. My uncle played at University of Michigan. I was taking the games my whole life as a child. This was it. My kids knew the words of the Michigan fight song before they knew the doxology. That's how it was at our place. And then my son went to Michigan State. And where your treasure is, your heart is also. And so we kind of became a torn family. But we still like Michigan. Even when they're playing Michigan State. We can tolerate other people. Just because you have an opinion or idea doesn't mean you can't tolerate other people's opinion or idea, that they differ from you. But in our society today, it's almost impossible to do so. If you don't hold the same belief system that I do, that's your choice. We can discuss, we can argue, we can disagree about them, but it doesn't mean that I'm intolerant because I have a different system that I believe in. To say that Christians are intolerant because they believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father is to ignore the fact that every other religion also is exclusive in its pathway to God. Some of the biggest proponents of tolerance in our culture today won't tolerate our perceived intolerance, and you can unpack that by running it back on the video today. What I will say is this, that as Christians, we need to be a lot more careful about the way that we talk about other faith systems, because we come across as intolerant. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later in this morning's message. Don't all paths lead to God? Well, the short answer is yes. All paths lead to God. You hear it here. All paths do lead to God. The real question, however, is which God are you headed toward? The assumption by many in that question is that all religions are talking about the same idea of God and that it means the same thing to everybody to connect to that God. Grantley Morris writes this about the idea that all paths lead to God. To overlook obvious differences between religions might seem broad-minded. In reality, it's about as proud and narrow as a person can get. To say all religions are basically the same is to claim to be smarter than each of the billions of people who believe in unique aspects of their religion and are of supreme importance to God. It is to claim that even though you are not an expert in their religion, you know that they are wrong. And you know that their religion is really no different than all the others. So let's just um, look at this idea about do all paths lead to God. Let's just examine this for a minute. I put together this little chart. Um, It's got like the five major world religions on it. And interestingly enough, if you look on five major world religions, Judaism does not appear. Because the percentage of people who are Jews in the world today isn't high enough to appear on this list, but I included them because it's part of our foundation and our our background. So the religion is named, their idea of God, their view of eternity, and their pathway. And I'm going to admit, this is about as simple as it can get. It's not meant to be, you know, the totality of everything, but it's just the ideas that kind of give you an opinion about the dual paths lead to God. So the religion, Buddhism, right? They believe in a God who's an impersonal force out there somewhere that... Um, the, the, that eternity is really enlightenment and enlightenment in this world, in this life you receive it now and this is really what you're trying to achieve and you get there by this eightfold path to God that they follow in Hinduism there are many different gods, um, they believe eternity is called nirvana and the way you get there is through lies and deaths, right? Reincarnation and through every reincarnation you come back better than you were the last time until eventually you're going to inherit nirvana In Islam, they call their their God Allah. They believe that eternity is called paradise. And to walk that pathway, you have to achieve these five pillars of faith that are part of the, the Muslim religion. In Judaism, they believe in God who's called Yahweh. They believe that there's an eternity and that you achieve this eternity with God by obedience to the law. And then there is Christianity who believe in this goofy concept called the triune God who is three in one. We believe that eternity is heaven and that the means to get there is grace. Now simply by looking at that chart, you can see that the question, do all paths lead to God? The automatic question is, well, which God are you talking about? Because all the gods are very different. And certainly the kind of God that you're headed toward is determined by the pathway that you're asked to follow. If you're asked to follow all sorts of different pathways, how can they all be the same God? There are similarities in religion, but their gods are all viewed very differently. Now, don't all paths lead to God? Usually leads up to some kind of follow-up questions along the way. The follow-up questions kind of look like this. One of them would be, isn't it enough just to be a good person and to live a good life and to be sincere we hear this all the time isn't that enough just to be a good person to be sincere about what you believe in isn't that great well that's I like sincerity and I like good people a writer named Cliff Connectal tells this story in his book give me an answer and it's a hypothetical story but it gets across the point about about sincere and good suppose a student didn't study for their exam And instead, they went to the exam with all the sincerity that they could muster. And they wrote the most sincere answers that they could. And when they got their exam back, they had failed. And so they went to the professor. How could you fail me? The student said to the professor. I expressed exactly the way I felt on this exam. And I was extremely, I used my sincerity pen. That's what I had. I was extremely sincere in everything that I wrote. How could you fail me? The professor looked a student in the eye and said, well, you were honestly wrong, and you were sincerely mistaken. I mean, this is the way it works, right? Sincerity and being good and being honest and being determined, you know, that's all, those are all good things, but if you're headed in the wrong direction, you can be sincere and good and determined to get to the wrong place. I mean, many years ago, I was watching, a, a surprisingly, a football game um, between the Minnesota Vikings and the Detroit Lions. I must have been really bored that day. And... Um, So so, uh, this defensive lineman, Jim Marshall, recovered a fumble that was fumbled by the Detroit Lions. And he ran down the field, and he was shirking tacklers. and He was determined to get to the end zone. He was going to be there. Nobody was going to stop him. He was sincere in his determination. And he did score a touchdown that day in the wrong end zone. But he was sincere, and he was determined. And he was really good about what he did. He was just headed to the wrong spot. So, so when we get this question about sincerity and goodness, one of the questions you have is, well, who measures how sincere I have to be? And who determines how good I have to be? And whose idea of sincerity and goodness do I have to follow? Now, I could give you a really ridiculous illustration that I thought of this morning, which is always dangerous because I don't have it written down. And it's not very well thought out, but I think it's good, right? So if you are a drug dealer... You can be very sincere and good at what you do. And you can be, in some ways, a good person. Because um, the mindset of a drug dealer may be, you know, have you ever seen somebody who doesn't get their drugs and goes into withdrawal and is on the street foaming at the mouth and puking and can't wait till they get their next fix? And so what I do for them is provide relief. I'm sincere in what they do. I'm very concerned about these people. And the best thing I can do for them is a really good thing. I'm going to make sure they have their drugs. So you see how twisted this idea of sincerity and goodness can be. But basically the idea is by what measure? How do I know if I'm being sincere enough? How do I know if I'm being good enough? And by whose measure is that? (laughs) Another question that you get as a Christian, it's a follow-up question to don't all paths lead to God, is what about all the people in the world who never get a chance to hear about Jesus? Which is a difficult question, a perplexing question, but also a question that's answered in Scripture. R.C. Spruill writes about it in his book called Reason to Believe. If God were to punish a person for not responding to a message that he had no possibility of hearing, that would be a gross injustice. It would be radically inconsistent with God's own revealed justice. We can rest assured that no one is ever punished for rejecting Christ if they've never heard of Christ. But before we sigh too deep a breath of relief, let us keep in mind that those who haven't heard about Christ are still not off the hook. It is precisely at this point that the New Testament locates the universal um, guilt of man. God's wrath is revealed, not against innocence or ignorance, but against ungodless and wickedness. And this is where Paul writes about it in Romans. Paul says, "...the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who surpass the truth, the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, God, because God has made it plain to them... For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been made clearly seen and understood from what has been made. And so these people are without excuse. So what Paul is really writing about here is what we call the general grace of God. And everybody has a sense that there's some kind of ultimate being. Otherwise, why would you have all of these religions that are trying to talk about what that ultimate being is about and what they look like? We have this sense that there's, there's a God who, who kind of created everything question is, how do we meet that God? And you can rest assured that if there are people in the world today, and it may be hard to imagine, but I'm sure it's possible theoretically, that some people have never heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to necessarily be in a foreign country to have that happen to you. But the good news is is that God is a God of grace, and God will deal with those people. If you haven't had a chance, God isn't going to not give you a chance. (laughs) This is oftentimes a question when I'm engaged in conversation with people who are non-believers. But what about all the people who don't hear the gospel? Ordinarily, that's a way of them taking um, the spotlight off themselves and trying to put it somewhere out there theoretically. What about that? And I'll go, well, God's got that handled. But what we're talking about right now is you and your life and your belief and your relationship with Christ. So let's stay on that. Let's not talk about these theoretical kinds of things. But God has it handled. Do all paths lead to God? The answer is yes, all paths do lead to God. The question is to which God and what kind of path do you have to travel? I mean, did you notice that in all the other world religions, you have to do something to earn oneness with God in their eternity? It's all up to us, it's all on our shoulders. We have to do all of the work. <laughs> whether it's like the, uh, the eightfold idea that we have to do all of those things, or the, or the pillars, or the observance of the law, or, or, or the right kind of lives and deaths, all of that is incumbent upon us, our efforts, our achievements. We're cleaning, climbing the mountain. We have to scale the obstacles. We have to figure out how to get there by ourselves. And we know us, right? I mean, we know us. We know that we take three steps forward and two steps back every time we're trying to do it under on our own and by our own determination. That's what happens. Only in Christianity does God come off the mountain and pick us up and carry us to the top himself. He knows we can't do it on our own. It's fruitless to do it on our own. He also knows that we slip into that pattern all the time. It's so easy. Even though we know about grace and mercy and forgiveness. Oh, I got to do this. I mean, I got to get to church on Sunday morning. I got to read my Bible. I got to do all this stuff. All of those are good things, but they're a response to the love of God. But not the way we, we don't have to earn the love of God. It's God's grace. It's a free gift to us. We don't have to climb the mountain to get to God. God comes down the mountain. And carries us to the top. Because he is a wonderful And a merciful Savior. Remember I said earlier that I'd come back to how we talk about our faith? We don't need to argue with people about Christianity. Or to say to anyone, well our faith is better than your faith. We've got the corner on the market on the truth. You're all wrong about that. I mean, it's not really a great way to enter into a conversation The apostles never did that. When the apostles engaged non-believers, they never talked about how much better their faith was or that they had the truth and the others were all wrong. They never said that. All they ever did was present the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and let it kind of rest and settle and let the Holy Spirit work on its own. The first evangelistic event that ever took place led to 3,000 people becoming believers in Jesus Christ that day. And the person who delivered the sermon was not Billy Graham. Not a trained theologian. He wasn't someone who had a stack of books that he studied. Okay, now I'm ready to go out and give this presentation. It was the Apostle Peter who had been a fisherman who hung out with Jesus for about three years. And he was hiding in a room. During Pentecost, when Jerusalem was filled with thousands of people. And the Holy Spirit entered the room and shoved the disciples out into public. Peter... It's like most of us. What do I say? I have no idea what, what I say. And all he did was tell about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very simple sermon. Very simple story. Didn't argue with anybody. Didn't say, you know, for thousands of years you've all had this wrong. Let me give you the real goods on this. He simply told the story of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit led 3,000 people to become believers that day. A little bit later in the book of Acts, Paul is on a mission journey going from town to town. And one of the towns he lands in is Athens, Athens, Greece, which is like a center of intellectual um, argument and philosophy. Uh, they're very, We would call them a very liberal city today. All sorts of ideas were accepted They had a place dedicated in the middle of town called the Areopagus where you could go and have these discussions and arguments about philosophical points of view. Very kind of open thing, no hostility there. And Paul is there, and he's sharing his beliefs about Jesus Christ, and they're curious. Well, you know, why don't you come to the Areopagus uh, tomorrow, Paul, and and tell us about this strange belief system that you've landed out. Uh, You know, tell, tell us about that. So the Apostle Paul goes to the Areopagus. All these statues to every possible God in the universe are there in the Areopagus because, you know, the Greeks are brilliant. They're not going to leave anything out. They're not going to, you know, make a mistake. They got everybody included. In fact, they want to make sure everybody's included so they even have a statue to an unknown God just to cover their bases. Now Paul could have stood there, right? Oh man, if you got this wrong, look at all these statues. All these statues are worthless. They're a bunch of stone. You might just turn them into dust. They don't mean anything. I've got the truth. That isn't what he did. In a brilliant evangelistic strategy, the Apostle Paul developed a point of connection with the Athenians. He looked at all these statues, all these people, and he goes, "Wow! I can see that you are a very religious people. I respect that about you. That's not a bad thing. It's great. In fact, I, I, I see that you even have a, a statue to an unknown god. Let me tell you about that god. And all Paul did from that point on was to share the life." and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without telling anybody else they were wrong, without telling anybody else they had the wrong path, without telling anybody else they had the wrong idea, he simply told the story. The most powerful evangelistic tool that you and I have in our tool belt is not... Calvin's Institutes or the Heidelberg Catechism or the Creeds, those are all great things and they're good for us to know because they're foundations for our faith, but the most powerful tool we have in our tool belt is our own story of our own relationship with Jesus Christ. People can argue with theology, they can argue with doctrine, but nobody can argue with your story. Your story of your relationship with a wonderful and merciful Savior. Do all paths lead to God? Yes. But it depends on what God you're trying to meet. Alice said, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And Jesus said, better than that, I'll take you there. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you love us so much that you became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ who is our Lord and our Savior. We thank you that he was so determined to put us into contact with you and to live with us eternally that he died on our behalf and defeated our greatest enemy. And so, O Lord, help us to take his hand as he leads us down the path to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.